listener production. A warning. This episode contains references to suicide. If this content does affect you, the number for Lifeline is 13 11 14. G'day, I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, we're going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force and what they've learned about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. This week, an officer who worked undercover, completely immersing himself in the world of drugs and violence during the peak of Australia's heroin crisis. Meeting someone with the intention of betraying them is a very difficult thing for a human being to do unless you're a sociopath. Keith Banks is one of Queensland's most decorated officers. He's received the Bravery Award and has twice been awarded the Queensland Police Medal of Honour. He's an officer who remembers almost every detail of the cases and operations he was involved in. That's a trait not everyone has, and it made him the perfect candidate for undercover work, which he undertook in the early 80s. If I stayed any longer than that two years, it probably would have been difficult to come back. This was a fascinating period in Queensland policing, and the undercover aspect personifies that. It was early days, rough, unregulated, and extremely dangerous. I remember sitting there looking at this weapon, and I cocked it, turned it around, put it in my mouth, and just thought, if I just squeeze this trigger, then all this pain goes away. Let's go back to the start and understand how Keith became involved in undercover work and learn about the job that shook him to his core. I was working on the Gold Coast and, uh, and it was an extended operation, I think maybe five or six months, can't remember the detail, but I was actually buying some pretty good high quality heroin and, and it was being imported directly into the Gold Coast. On the fringes of that, I met this young man and I thought he was initially 17 or 18. Um, pretty confident, outgoing young guy. He was a surfer. He had classic Gold Coast, you know, bleach blonde hair, muscular build, surfing guy, happy, affable. Um, and he he was on the fringes of this network. And the network was, again, a very social network, even though it was comprised particularly of heroin dealers or those either using or, or selling. So I worked my up the chain over a period of time. Two of the women that had sold me substantial amounts and who were my conduits to their dealers and then their dealers and then their dealers, they were using. And I spent a fair bit of time socialising with them because that was my part of my cover. I was at their house one night and this young man turned up and, and I'd, I'd realised over the course of a couple of months that he was being bashed by his father regularly. And, and I related that. I had issues with my stepfather when I was, I was a young kid. So I had this um, almost protective attitude towards him, but I couldn't carry that through because, you know, I was a heroin dealer. Um, 
he was around there one night. He'd been he'd been belted by his old man, and he was pretty distraught. And these two decided the best way to make him feel better was to shoot him up with his first hit of heroin. And there was no way I could interfere with it. You know, why would I interfere with someone using the product that I was making money from? So I had to sit there and watch while they put the tourniquet around his arm, cooked up the smack, injected him, um, and he pretty quickly developed a habit and started using. And as I said, I thought he was probably 17 or 18. When the operation closed, I found out he was a 14-year-old kid. And uh, when I left undercover, I, I went back to uniform. Then became a, a young detective, and I kept track of him. And I, I was told about four years later he died of heroin overdose in a public toilet in, in a pub on the Gold Coast. And it broke my heart. Um, and, and I've often thought about what I could have done differently, what I should have done differently, what I couldn't have done differently. And the reality is there's not much I could have done. You know, had I intervened, it would have blown the entire operation. And it just, it just exacerbates the whole tragedy of it, knowing that he was 14 and not, not older than that. And that's one of the things that you don't think about when you volunteer for this work. Could I ask, you know, when you make that decision to, to go across and do that, was there, was there much, Keith, in the way of education or preparation or even, you know, psychological testing to look at the guys or the women that they would put into those roles? <laughs> I chuckle at all of those questions, Brent. Because <laughs> there was, <laughs> because there was nothing. Um, I'd, I'd actually been on the road for probably three years. Um, I'd been sworn in at 19, so I volunteered for Undercover March 1980, so I wasn't yet 22. To give a bit of a background, I never drunk alcohol, never smoked a cigarette, certainly never used drugs. Um, I was training in martial arts generally four, five, six times a week. So I was right into fitness, I was right into training, and I had that um, that urge to contribute as much as I could to policing, you know, and that, that nice, fresh, naive blush of youth, I guess. And I wasn't aware that there was an undercover section, probably not a bad thing, um, a lot of people think uh, undercover policing is wearing a pair of jeans and runners and driving around in an unmarked car. It's not that at all. Undercover policing is immersing yourself in the criminal world with a fake identity and living the life of a criminal without obviously committing the offences. So I became aware there was an undercover section because I, I rolled up in uniform to a shots fired job that was a, uh, a drug squad takeout of a target in the centre of Brisbane. When I rolled up there, there was a uh, young guy, shoulder-length hair, you know, looked like a, a bit of a street grub, and the detectives asked us to take him in our car back to police headquarters as he was an undercover. As soon as I realised there was an undercover section, I wanted to be one. And, and I wanted to do that, and this is going to sound like night on a white charger stuff, but heroin overdoses were rampant in the 70s in Queensland and all across Australia. I don't know about New Zealand, but certainly it was an issue here. We had uh, the Mr. Asia Drug Syndicate, or Terence John Clark, who was one of your countrymen, who was responsible for a flood of heroin into Australia. And in those days, border control was non-existent. There was an Australian Bureau of Narcotics that later was shown to be fairly corrupt. Um, so heroin was hitting the streets on a massive scale and people were dying literally every day. I wanted to do something about it, and I thought being an undercover cop was um, a magnificent way to contribute to it. As I've said to people from that time to this, be careful what you wish for. I put my hand up, and yeah, I was a baby-faced little kid, and uh, I was 
never ever accused of looking like a cop and I was quite proud of that. The average cop I think in those days was over six foot tall and and at the risk of insulting some of them, the education standards weren't that high. So, you know, if you were a little bit different, then you certainly wouldn't be picked as a cop. I went and had a quick interview with the boss of the drug squad, liked the look of me, sent me on leave to grow my hair and grow a beard. In those days, cops weren't allowed to grow beards. And then I came back in and pretty much hit the ground running. So there was no psychological testing. There was no uh, aptitude testing. There was certainly no formal training. It was really, here you go. We'll team you up with someone for a couple of weeks, hang around with him, watch how he operates, and then you're on your own. In that two-year period, undercover, were you involved in the same operation with the same identity, or did you jump across to different locations and take on different identities during that time? Yeah, I, I had, um, I think from memory, four separate identities that, that I'd created, and we created our own backstories, so there was no support that way. We, we really, I say we, there were five of us, all young men. We worked out what our fake names would be. We were given blank driver's licenses, so we'd create our own identity, open up bank accounts. There were very little points of proof required in those days. And I had four separate wallets with library cards, bank card, um, driver's license, and other bits and pieces of ID that I'd gather in those separate names. The operations lasted generally, generally around three to four months. Some went a little longer. And after the operation was closed, everyone was arrested, um, we would then be tasked with another operation. And generally, if I did one in Brisbane, um, I'd be sent to North Queensland, far North Queensland for an operation up there. When that closed, I may be sent back down to the Gold Coast for one. When that closed, I may be sent to Western Queensland. And in those days, it's important to understand that at the end of every operation, our full identity was disclosed to the bad guys. So... Everyone I dealt with, everyone I'd bought drugs from, was charged with supplying or trafficking to me, Constable Keith Banks. So there was no, like there is now, and I'll be careful about current methodology, but um, identities of undercovers are never disclosed. Their true identities are never disclosed. Ours were. So our faces were known. Um, there was an operation I did in North Queensland where my my name and the registration number of my car and my physical description were scrawled on the wall of the watch house after the operation was closed. The number plates on the car were obviously false, but the fact that my ID was out there and my description was out there was pretty daunting. So we'd, we'd move variously around the state, change our appearance as much as possible. You know, I, I streaked my hair blonde, I grew a big beard, I shaved it off into a goatee, shaved that off into a moustache, cut my hair, grew my hair, um, and so on. And, and it was really wild west. It was up to us to figure out how we could best navigate through that. Keith, everyone's paranoid in these environments that there's a copper there or there's an undercover copper there. Um, did you ever at any time come close to having your cover blown? Because that, that's got to be the most frightening thing that can occur when you're out there on your own as a police officer and then suddenly something happens and you're identified. Yeah, it, it happened a few times. I was recognised by people I'd gone to school with. Um, there was one, one particular operation. I was in far north Queensland and one of the few times I was working with a, an undercover colleague, we were in a, um, a bar, a disco, a discotheque <laughs> for the young people listening, <laughs> and um, and with our target, and, and we didn't realise that our target was an escaped double murderer. He'd escaped from prison in Adelaide. And I was with him 
uh, and my colleague walked up to the bar to order a drink and, and the bar manager, who I'd not seen since year eight, um, and this is some years later, I've got long hair and a beard, for some reason recognised me and called me by my real name. And I was going under another name at that point. And the way I had to react to that was to use some pretty strong language, um, threaten to punch him, you know, tell him it wasn't my name, pull his head and just get, get us our effing drinks and so on. And I remember turning and looking at the target and if you've ever seen photographs of Charles Manson with those black, soulless, evil eyes, that's what this guy was like. And he looked at me and it still gives me chills to think about it. That's the fear, being recognised and, and you need to be able to think quickly. And the hypervigilance that comes with that is massive. And there's a lot of medical... Uh, research now around the production of cortisol, adrenaline, etc. Um, and cortisol gives you the fight or flight, but if it stays in your body too long, it becomes a problem. And I, and I look back and I think, you know, most of us probably had an overload of cortisol for all the time we're undercover. So there was that. There was also the issue of corruption. I have friends whose cover had been um, purposely blown by corrupt police. Um, one of them was almost shot um, as a result of that. There was a a chase through rainforest in North Queensland with two of the targets firing at him with assault rifles. And and that was not common, but also not uncommon. Um, being recognised by someone that you'd previously arrested was an issue as well. That happened to me. And fortunately, the, the guy couldn't quite remember who I was and he had a shot of heroin and, and went on the nod and sort of lost his focus and his concentration. So that's a constant thing to live with. And you always have to have in the back of your mind a reason or an excuse. And the problem with that is I still think that way these, these days, all those years later. I always have a, something in the back of my mind. How does that initial transition into the environment that you wish to enter into, be that a drug environment, be it sort of gangs or whatever, can you talk about that transition and how that comes about? Um, initially, I was introduced to circles through an informant or an informer. Um, and, and I have to say, I learned it on the run. You know, I think the first probably three months, I made some major mistakes. I was too nice. I was too polite. I was more myself than the person I was portraying. And that set off alarm bells with, uh, with the targets I was working on. Almost got blown a couple of times just because of my inexperience. But once I understood that this is method acting, this is actually becoming the person who you're portraying, and pulling it just that little tiny wincy bit short of, of actually becoming the criminal, it became a lot easier. I was able then to, through intelligence, look at certain people who were congregating in a pub or other environments and just work my way in. And, and I have to say, playing pool and talking to people in a pub didn't immediately become or didn't immediately come naturally to me because I, I didn't drink. I soon started drinking. But developing that ability to talk to strangers and then insinuating yourself into their network without them understanding that you were doing that, and that was something that I had to learn and adapt to, which was outside my normal personality, because I, I was reasonably introverted. So initially introduced by informants, other ways befriending someone on the fringe and having them vouch for me um, without them knowing exactly who I was. So it's... The, the no, no two operations were identical. So as I say, I made a combination of everything. 
did you back in the early eighties? Did did you have a handler? Did you have a connection between the world that you were living in and a handler who was assigned to you to be your connection back into the police and to give you additional information of what they required, or were you very much just sort of on your own in there? It depended on the situation again. Um, if we were working outside the metropolitan area, sometimes, not often, but sometimes there'd be a local detective who was trusted that we would meet in the dark of night, you know, straight out of a Jason Bourne movie, in the dark of night in a, in a park somewhere, you know, driving and making sure we weren't being followed or watched. I was never comfortable doing that because I wasn't sure that the person I was meeting had um, had that hypervigilance necessary as, as well. So that, that sometimes happened. Often, um, I'd simply be ringing the office from a public phone booth, and again, kiddies, there were no mobile phones in those days, with a, a pocket full of 20-cent pieces, and literally ringing the office and saying, OK, it's Keith, I'm here, everything's fine thus far, I've got one, two, three, four, five targets, and I'd keep the exhibits and... Maybe a month later, someone would fly up from Brisbane, meet me at a prearranged place. I'd hand over the drug exhibits and my notes and so on, and off they'd go. Um, in the metropolitan area where it was it was not as uh, expensive, I suppose, to fly people up there, I had definitely people who were contacts, but they weren't handlers as such. They weren't trained. They weren't controllers. Uh, when I started controlling operations later in my career, I'd actually undergone a, a fairly intensive training course. So I knew what I should be doing. I knew what I should be doing anyway because of the way that my colleagues and I weren't controlled or supported. So I brought a, um, I brought a different approach to that as well. I had a, a real relationship with my covert operatives, sort of like the big brother approach, I guess. Your day-to-day life as a deep undercover or deep cover um, uh, police officer Basically, you are in there gathering and getting that information together. That was part of it, but it was more than that, Brent. I was actually buying drugs. I was buying a lot of heroin, a lot of uh, cannabis, a lot of acid, not so much cocaine in those days, certainly a lot of amphetamine. So I was literally making drug deals. I was portraying myself as a a young uh, middle-level dealer. You know, I was in it for the money. Um, I was making my money for a couple of years and I was out. That was one of my covers. Another cover um, right off the top of my head was I was uh, portraying myself as someone who'd inherited a couple of hundred grand and was too lazy to work, so I wanted to double it quickly. Um, So I was literally, if I met you, I would set up a drug deal. You and I, I would give you money, you would give me drugs. I would then go back and wherever I was staying, voucher that in a... um, an envelope, write notes of our conversation because that would all be produced in court later. So everyone I dealt with, let's say over a three or four month period, and I may well have bought from 80 to 100 people. Some were social supply in pubs, but the majority of them were up that chain. Everyone would be arrested and charged with selling drugs to an undercover agent at a certain date, time and location. So they'd all be charged. In conjunction with that, I'd be gathering intel and information on their dealers. If I couldn't get to their dealers physically, I'd know who they were. So at the close of an operation, everyone who I'd bought from would be arrested, um, interviewed, charged. Other houses or offices or warehouses would also be raided simultaneously, and whatever large amounts of drugs were found in there would be in the possession of the people who were targets up the chain, if that all makes sense. So it was all down to the individual undercover 
and what information they could gather, what buys they could make over that period of time. And working one out, essentially, just my day would be I'd, I'd wake up. Um, we often joke that, you know, it took a while to figure out you had to be out of bed before 8am years later. But, uh, you know, I might wake up at nine o'clock in the morning and then spend all day literally doing drug deals, hanging around in pubs, going out at night, hanging around in clubs, meeting people, doing drug deals, but also socialising with them. Then home at, you know, two o'clock in the morning, sleep, wake up, rinse, repeat, and do that for three or four months. And the challenge that I've found, um, and every undercover I've spoken to, regardless of um, era, they all say that meeting someone with the intention of betraying them is a very difficult thing for a human being to do unless you're a sociopath. So that was the challenge. Knowing full well that these people were offenders and some of them were, were dealing in large amounts of heroin that were killing people. But sometimes they were pretty personable people as well. They were fun to hang around with. You know, they were outgoing. They were enjoyable company. So all of that as a 22 and 23 year old young man is tough stuff to deal with. So it's not just the danger of the job, the hypervigilance and all of that. It's the fact that you are hanging around with people that you don't mind the company of knowing full well you're going to send them to jail. Once I'd been in and doing the job and going from operation to operation for I think around 12, 18 months, I started to think, wow, you know, it's probably time I considered getting out of this. And there were a couple of reasons for that. I, I knew it was changing me as a person. I, I started drinking. I started smoking dope. Um, I'd have the occasional cigarette. I was lying to everybody that I met. I told all of my friends outside the police force that I'd been fired because drugs were found in my locker. And whilst the job or the work itself was quite exhilarating in that sense, you know, portraying someone else and living that life is, is pretty cool as a young guy. No rules, no supervision, dress how you like, look how you like, almost act how you like. But I knew then intuitively that if I stayed any longer than that two years, it probably would have been difficult to come back. And I had friends who found it, a couple of them found it impossible to go back. I read an interview that you had done recently where you, you spoke of another colleague of us, a peer of yours that um, also went undercover, who went under the name of Harry, obviously he's not his real name now, this was a young bloke around your age, um, you know, a young probationary constable, no doubt, Queensland police, a young uh, a young man who was a devout Muslim, um, didn't drink alcohol when he joined the job. He worked as an undercover operative, and I'm sure I'm missing a lot of the intricacies and detail here, but tragically became a, um, a heroin addict, um, committed armed robberies, no doubt as an attempt to support that habit, almost died of a heroin overdose, I think did uh, three years in prison in South Australia, seven in Queensland, 10 years imprisonment. I mean, that is a, that is a life lost, isn't it, to, um, to, to the rigours of undercover policing? Harry was one of the reasons I started writing. I wanted to tell his story and, and I wanted people to understand that being a cop is much more than writing traffic tickets and you know attending scenes of crime and, and locking up bad guys. Harry, like all of us, was committed to, to working undercover for all the right reasons. And he was in a situation where he had to use heroin. He, his, his life was literally at risk. And, and like Shane, like the young 14-year-old, he 
just developed a habit. You know, some people have an addictive personality and, and, and a lot of drug use is based in trauma. That'd be a whole nother podcast we could talk about. Um, but he, he started using, and we knew that something wasn't quite right, but none of us picked up on the fact that he was, he was mainlining heroin pretty much every day. You know, addicts can hide their track marks. They can shoot up between their toes and, and all various places that aren't obvious. And, um, and Harry was transferred back to uniform when he left undercover. He was put in a pretty ordinary position um, back in uniform. So there was no, no reintegration, no, no real support of undercovers. We just took our chances to go back to wherever we, we were working. Um, he was removed from the police force quite quietly and his whole life was ruined by his job. Um, and ironically, when he was charged with armed robberies in Queensland after he was released from jail in Adelaide, ironically, the judge in South Australia took into account his undercover work and the impact on him, so he got such a light sentence. No such luck in Queensland. It was just bad luck, mate. You're, you're in. And he did his time really hard. So you can, you know, police officers, when they go to jail, don't do it lightly. Um, he did die of a heroin overdose in, in jail in Brisbane and he was brought back to life and, and that's when he made a conscious decision to change and turn his life around. I call him a, a very close friend. I still do. I have no um, compunction in doing that, even though he was an armed robber. Um, he's a lovely human being. He's, he's converted to Christianity, uh, so he's left his, his initial religion behind. He is, I won't say where he's living, but I do know where he lives. Um, he now spends his retirement helping kids. He's married. Um, he, he has a, a beehive of all things. And he just spends his time trying to make up for all of those mistakes, but still carries major grief and remorse. You know, and all because of a job that he did thinking that he was contributing to a better world. Keith, can I take you forward to 1987, operation called Operation Flashdance? This is a time where my understanding is you're the leader of a tactical weapons team. You received uh, a tip-off with regards to the location of a one of the most wanted criminals in Queensland, a guy called Paul Mullen. Keith, could I get you to, to pick up from there and, and walk us through that operation? We'd started a full-time tactical response group probably... Um, only two months before I was one of the inaugural members of that full-time team. And, uh, and we were tasked with uh, preparing a plan for an assault on a house to arrest number one most wanted. The detectives who were in charge had received information from someone who attended the house that Mullen was there. He was wanted. He'd escaped from Long Bay Prison some years before. He'd been uh, committing armed robberies all over Queensland, Western Australia and South Australia. Accomplished bushman and an ex-soldier. So he was very proficient with weapons. We were given the job to prepare a, uh, a plan to take him out. Take him out being arrest him. We considered apprehending him in public. We considered doing a vehicle intercept and the usual things that we looked at. And I'll, I'll be careful about methodology because some of them still apply today. So we discounted those and uh, because he had fired rounds previously. He'd shot two people in cold blood. So we decided the most effective way to contain the threat was to smash the door in um, in the early hours of the morning. 
So I had just completed a counter-terrorist instructors course with the Special Air Service in Perth uh, about a month before. So I was, um, I was tasked with to develop a deliberate action plan, which we did. We submitted that plan to our force command and we wanted to use tear gas and stun grenades or flashbangs as they're called. That was refused. Um, one of those things that I think uh, the people who made that decision didn't really understand what we were talking about and rather than ask the question, they just said a blanket no. So we were required to go into this house with not the equipment and the tactics that I, I wanted to put in place. We were equipped with bullet-resistant vests at that stage, um, which were level two vests, which were only designed to withstand pistols and shotgun rounds. So forced entry into the house. Um, Mullen had changed the back door hinges around to impede progress. So in other words, a door normally opens inwards. He'd change the hinges to make it open outward. That slowed down our entry by probably three to five seconds, which is a long time in a tactical world. It was pitch black. Um, we made our way through the house, announcing ourselves as required to do by law. Police, don't move. Um, Peter Kidd, my mate, was uh, in the front of the assault team that I was, um, I was leading. And as a leader, my position was number four in what's called the Order of March. So you can picture it, it's pitch black, the door goes in, smash the hinges. Um, I'd instructed a team outside his bedroom, Mullen's bedroom, to throw a ladder through the window as a distraction um, to have him believe we were coming in that way. As they did that, he jumped out of bed and fired two high powder rounds straight through the skirting board at where a team would be. So in essence, he was ready to go. As we got into the bedroom a couple of seconds later, he opened fire. Um, he shot Peter five times with a high-powered rifle at close quarters. He shot another member of the team, Steve, through the stomach, and two of us um, in the ensuing gunfight um, entered the bedroom and killed him. And that whole operation took probably 30 seconds, but the aftermath lasted for me three decades. Um, when... The shooting had stopped. Uh, Peter was crumpled in the corner and the rounds had gone straight through his vest And because the vest just wasn't built to withstand that, that high-powered rifle fire. He was shot uh, four times in the torso and once through the wrist and he was dying um, on the floor as I was trying to tend to him. Steve, the other guy, had been picked up by the round and pushed back into the corridor. He was, uh, he was in immense pain um, and by the time the ambulance arrived... Uh, Mullen was clearly dead. We'd, we'd shot and killed him before the ambulance walked into the house. Uh, they took them both away and Peter died probably two hours later, I think. That, that day had a major, profound, massive, I can't use enough words to describe it, impact on my, my mental well-being um, and put me into the depths of, of darkness that that just lasted for, as I say, decades. It was a horrible day. I think amongst the tragedy, one of the ironies, terrible, was I think it later came out that um, Peter Kidd had actually written um, a detailed report uh, with regards to requesting an upgrade of those ballistic vests because they weren't really adequate for purpose. Uh, it was not backed on, on, on budgetary grounds. I mean... Just all these layer upon layer of, of, of circumstance yeah. around that. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. He 
he was the equipment officer. He was one of the other full-timers. Peter and I had started full-time in that section together. We'd been part-time operators, um, gee whiz, for six years before that or five years before that, and we were... We were approached to be the first full-time nucleus. We loved it. We lived it. We breathed it. Um, and, yeah, ironically, as we were laying out the vests and the equipment the night before the raid, one of the detectives said to Pete, there were these things stop a high-powered rifle, and he said, God, no, it would go through it like a knife through butter, quote, unquote. And hours later, he was dead as a result. And it still makes me angry all these years later, but suddenly the budget was found after the media headlines screamed inappropriate equipment. And in one of those strange decisions, the people in charge sent me to, to Sydney, think about four weeks after the shooting, to go to Sydney with police special tactics people from around the country and fire rounds at ballistic vests to test them. So think about the trauma that I'd gone through and then four weeks later I'm firing high-powered weapons in a shooting range in Sydney at vests to save police lives. And again, um, I don't condemn the department for it because no one understood about trauma. No one understood, well, the term PTSD wasn't even used then. But on reflection, not probably the best thing to do for someone who's been in a traumatic incident and lost one of his mates in a gunfight to send him to do that. Um, I, I, developed, uh, I developed a lot of anger very quickly um, as a result of that anger against the establishment, against force command. I literally wanted to be involved in every operation I could from that point in time to have the opportunity to shoot someone or to shoot someone else. Um, doesn't take a shrink to figure out why, but I was in the middle of all that darkness and, and um, despair and trauma. And not long after that, um, the other operator who had shot Mullen as well, we were both told that there was a price in our heads from a, an organised group of criminals in Sydney act, acting on behalf of Mullins de facto, who was in the house. So we were given permission to carry our firearms off duty, and that was it. So there was no security check of our houses or anything. It was just, oh, well, you better carry your guns off duty. Um, and I talk about this openly, and maybe a couple of weeks after that, um, I was drinking every night subsequent to this operation. I couldn't sleep if I wasn't drunk. My hypervigilance went through the roof. Um, I was just living on nerves and, uh, and drunk every night, wake up in the morning, go for a 5K run, sweat it all out, go to the range, fire, train all day, do jobs, come home and do it all again. And I was sitting there one night with my 9mm pistol. My partner had gone out to a function. She worked in advertising, so she wasn't in the cops. And I remember sitting there looking at this weapon and, uh, and I cocked it turned it around, put it in my mouth and just thought, if I just squeeze this trigger, then all this pain goes away, um, which is a horrible place to be. And the only reason I didn't squeeze that trigger was because I was worried about the impact it would have on her when she came home to find my brain matter all over the wall. And, and in that moment of clarity, I, I took the gun out of my mouth and stripped it and un unloaded it and stripped it and, and got up in the morning and thought, man, I've got some problems but there was no support, there was no one to talk to. You know, I don't tell the story to look for sympathy or uh, have any victimhood. It's, it's really 
a statement of the way it was. And and it's empowered me now to take a huge platform um, to talk to. I talk to many people about mental fitness, mental health, PTSD, recovery, and so on. And that lived experience is, thank God I got through it, but that lived experience has really brought me to where I am now. Keith, I'm going to take you to 1993, the MLC building siege in the CBD of, um, of Brisbane. You're a detective sergeant at this time working a major crime, running a covert operation, interestingly. A call went out to attend a job at the MLC building, which you attended with your partner uh, with regards to shots fired in the foyer. Can you, can you take it from there for us, uh, Keith? This is another good example, Brent, of, of how unpredictable policing is or can be. I was, it was a Saturday afternoon. It was about 2 o'clock or 2.30, I think, from memory. And, I'd, and you're quite right. I'd been running a covert operation, so I was dressed down. I had jeans and a polo shirt. I'd met my undercover, did the running sheet, did all that stuff. And my colleague and I were, were heading back in a, a covert car back to headquarters. We had an any unit call, and any unit shots fired in the vicinity of the MLC building in the city. And any cop worth their salt will always respond to a job like that. At that time in Australia, there'd been a number of massacres. It was before the um, abolition of high-powered rifles, assault rifles, etc. You could buy anything you wanted, basically. So I just had visions of um, the Hoddle Street Massacre in Melbourne, the Strathfield Massacre in Sydney, the Queen Street Massacre in Melbourne, and on and on and on. So responded, drove in there, jumped out of the car with my firearm in my hand and, uh, and went straight back into tactical mode. I'd, I'd left the tactical world in '89 and had gone into covert surveillance and back into major crime. But I just had those skills still bubbling under the surface anyway. And I, I raced up the stairs to the building with the intention of shooting this guy if I had to. Got to the top of the stairs and uh, there were the police response was a bit undisciplined, I suppose, so I put a cordon in place, did all the usual stuff. And, uh, and a sergeant uh, indicated around the corner and sort of nodded in the direction of something. And I peeked around and saw this guy sitting with his back against the wall with a, um, a rifle across his lap, army webbing in front of him, and uh, a box. And I couldn't quite see what was in the box, but I just started talking to him, you know, the usual stuff. What's going on, mate? Take it easy. And he wasn't an immediate threat, so I, I didn't fire, you know. Um, and his first response to me was, put the gun down or I'll blow the whole effing place up. And uh, I took a step forward and thought, uh-oh. And I saw in the box there what turned out to be 15 sticks of gelignite, three electronic detonators wired up in series um, with a 12-volt battery near his hand. I'd been bomb trained, so I knew exactly what it was. For whatever reason, um, I put my firearm down and took a couple of steps and spent the next hour and a half talking him down or trying to talk him down and I really just made it up as I went along. I reflect on that and I, the fact that I'd been an undercover agent all those years before had taught me the ability to quickly establish rapport with anybody and that's what I started doing with him. Um, took me a while and, uh, and I found out during the whole conversation between his manic episodes, he'd, he'd be friendly one minute and then threatening to kill me the next. He had been to Vietnam. He'd come back from Vietnam, and those of us old enough to remember how those diggers were treated, and they were treated appallingly. There were no ticker tape parades. There were no welcome back. There was no well done. Kind of like being an undercover cop. Um, 
and uh, and he he had major post traumatic stress disorder. Again, not that we knew what it was. But I was talking to him. I persuaded him to give the rifle up in exchange for a pot of beer, which is totally against the rules. We reflect back on the fact that, as I said, when I finished undercover, I didn't believe in rules and I was rebellious and, and so on. Um, I went outside a few times and talked the commission officer out the front into letting me do what I needed to do. Brought back a, bot- uh, a pot of light beer and, and he surrendered the rifle. He was smoking cigarettes over this jellic night and um, very quickly after I'd entered, I, I'd said to him, you know, what's in the box, Frank? And he reached in and tossed me a half a stick of jellic night and it was sweating through its... It's outside, and, and in essence, if gelignite is sweating nitroglycerin, it's incredibly unstable. So you shouldn't drop it, you shouldn't bump it, you certainly shouldn't smoke over it. And here we were, having a whole conversation about this, and he went through a packet of cigarettes, and I'd given up smoking, and I started smoking again because I thought, well, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And that sounds blasé, but that's just the way it was, and that's not about bravery, that's about just acceptance, I think. During the whole conversation... He told me about his dreams and his flashbacks and his anger and his depression and his drinking. And I sat there and thought, wow, this guy's talking about me. Jesus. And, and I really think that um, that gave me the ability to connect with him on a personal level. And I was able to turn the conversation around so that it became he and I against the rest of the world. And ultimately, that enabled me to talk him out of the the, the situation. Um, many funny things, believe it or not, happened through that. And it's, uh, <laughs> here's a teaser. If you want to find out exactly what happened, read the book. Um, <laughs> but there were, <laughs> there were some things that I still chuckle at, um, even though, you know, both of us came very close to death. And he produced a hand grenade when I thought I really had him persuaded to come out and pull the pin of the hand grenade out and, and then, you know, told me to get out because he was going to detonate it. Um, and that's when I told him I had too many nightmares and he wasn't going to be another one and, and asked and begged him to put the pin back in the grenade. And, and that was, he looked at me and said, well, you, you really aren't going to go anywhere. And I said, no, mate, I'm not. And, and that was a human connection that, um, was completely unplanned. It was just, just a connection that I had with him that I understood his trauma and his pain on an absolute visceral level because I was going through exactly the same stuff. And ultimately, when he agreed to come out with me, um, the only thing he wanted was not to be handcuffed. Totally agreed with that, walked him out. And um, and as I've walked him out, there's some uh, news footage of a young detective coming up and telling me something. And the instruction was from a commission officer across the road to put handcuffs on that person and my response to the young guy was, tell the inspector to go and get effed. I'm, I'm doing this my way. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, so that, that was a great result. And, and what really still touches my heart is it was probably two months later, I think, when the court case, um, the committal hearing in front of the magistrate to determine whether the case should be heard in a district court. So I gave evidence. Frank was sitting in the box, in the dock rather, this time handcuffed. And I gave my evidence and I gave it... Um, with my opinion, and because the defence had asked me what I thought of his state of mind, and I just said, look, I'm not a shrink, I'm not a psychologist, rather. I said, but I, I could see he was traumatised, I could see he was struggling. Again, I got smacked by the prosecutor after that, because um, I'm not supposed to say those things. But I, as I walked past the dock on my way out, he said, Keith, can you, you got a minute? And I said, yeah, what's up, mate? And he motioned me over and he shook my hand and said, thank you for saving my life, mate. 
Mm. And that, um, that, still, that still elicits an emotional response because, you know, I went there with the intention of shooting him and, and in turn I saved his life. And um, I really think back that was probably a turning point for me to start to, to work through some of the darkness I was going through. So good result for a change. The fate on that day had you there, and um, ironically, you perhaps learned as much from him as he did from you, and and it was a great result for you both. Uh, yeah, well, not a great absolutely. result, I guess, but a result that could have been a hell of a lot worse. Oh, I, I agree, Brenton. Thank you for saying that, mate. I I actually think that there was a bit of fate involved in that, um, and and I don't want to sound um, I don't know self serving or arrogant, but I don't think it could have been resolved by somebody else. I think you're right. I think he would have set that device off. He was just ready to go. Keith, um, I want to thank you so much for not only just for taking the time to come in and have a chat to us here today, but some of the insights that you've shared, I, I have absolutely no doubt will um, will be of not only of real interest to many listening in, but could even could even be that sort of light bulb of of, of recognition for some or for family members that, that others may be experiencing, you know, some of those things that you've so honestly and openly spoken about. I guess just wanted to wish you all the very best as you, where you are and, and as you move forward with all your future endeavours and um, and looking back over that, uh, over that 20 years, Keith, just sincerely thank you for your service and, and the time that you put in. Thank you, Matt. That means a lot. Thank you. Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden, and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly.